Our guest today is no stranger to the 1111 service. Matter of fact, he's no stranger to most anyone in this room. You know him as the evening news anchor. Uh, most, most of you see him on your television screen throughout the week. He's got a beautiful family. His wife, wife Lisa, is on our team at 1463. Four beautiful, beautiful daughters. But beyond all that, Keith Garvin is a churchman. He's someone who was part of the second family and has been for quite some time. He teaches Bible study at 1463. He was just a few weeks ago at high school beach retreat as a condo leader. He is everywhere. He's everywhere. But what I love most about Keith Garvin is he is unapologetic, outspoken, and a bold, bold witness for Jesus Christ in the world, in the marketplace, and in our community. So 1111. Show some love and please welcome to our service, Keith Garvin. All right. Hello, Woodway Campus. And Terry, thank you so much for that uh, wonderful introduction. So happy to be here. Always happy to come to, to Woodway. Uh, I have the pleasure of being joined this morning by uh, my two oldest daughters. And one of them brought a boyfriend. Woo! <laughs> No, no pressure, no pressure, but no, he's, 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 he's a great young man who loves the Lord, so we're, we're happy that he's with us here as well today. Uh, Terry, mentioned my, Terry mentioned my wife, uh, Lisa. Uh, Lisa is the children's director at our 1463 campus, and so, you know, she's usually pretty busy on Sunday mornings. And on top of that, as uh, most of you all know, uh, on this campus, that campus, all of our campuses, tomorrow is the first day of VBS. So she has a few more important things to do than listen to her husband blow hot air on Sunday, so... Um, <laughs> but I know she's here in spirit. Um, speaking of not hot air and speaking of substance, I want you all to watch this video clip with me. Just take a look. One play can win a football game. One game can make a season. And one player, any player, may make or break a play, a game, a season. There are approximately 150 plays in a football game and there are only three or four plays in any game which make the difference between winning and losing. No one knows when the big play is coming up. Therefore, every player must go all out on every play. In other words, every player has a responsibility on every play. And that responsibility begins with the proper use of his given talent. The development of all talent is founded on fundamentals. And in football, the first of the fundamentals is the basic football position. All right, ladies and gentlemen, that right there is the late, great Vince Lombardi. To this day, he is considered one of the greatest coaches to ever coach the game. And one of the reasons that made him such a great coach, and you heard him mention it there, he mentioned fundamentals. He drilled fundamentals and the basics into his players. The idea was, you know, if, if you know the fundamentals well and you do them well over and over and you combine that with talent, you're going to have much greater rates of success. And we can really apply that principle to our daily lives and even our spiritual lives, our walk with Christ. And we've heard our senior pastor, Dr. Young, say so many times, whenever you follow the word of God, it works out every time. Whenever you follow the word of God, it works out every time. What is, what is that saying? That is a basic fundamental understanding of the, the faith and trust that we are to have in God and also in his word. Uh, we're going to talk about some fundamentals today, some other fundamentals, and that is the fundamentals of the worship of God. We're going to be looking at Psalm 100. 
Psalm 100 is where we're going to be if you want to get a head start there. But Psalm 100, Psalm, uh, the verses in Psalm 100 are like all the other psalms. They, they were written as lyrics. They were, they were written to be sung. Uh, and there are, there are only five verses in Psalm 100, but they say so much about the fundamental worship uh, and about why, how we worship Almighty God, but also why he is deserving of our worship. And so hopefully what we're going to see today is we're going to see this uh, illustration from Psalm 100. It's an illustration you see all of Israel leading the rest of the world through the streets of Jerusalem on the way to the temple to, to meet with God, to worship God, to honor God. They go into the, the gates and then they end up going into the court and, and, and that, that's, that's what Israel does. That, that is Israel's job. And hopefully what we're going to see this morning is, is a very fundamental aspect of worship that still applies today. We go to God in order to get God. We go before God's presence in order to get him. So let's see what Psalm 100 has to say about worshiping our Lord. And we're going to start in the first four, four verses. Psalm 100, a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. So we see in the very first verse, it says, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. And it was Israel's job to, to lead in that worship. And Israel, of course, was called to worship Almighty God. But what we see here in Psalm 100 is that the entire world, all peoples, are called to worship Almighty God. And, 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 and even today, we are called, the entire world, not just Christians, the entire world is called to worship Almighty God. Well, how are we doing with that these days? I mean, you look around this country, you look around this world, and you see so many people day by day worshiping everything there is out there besides God, worshiping worldviews, ideologies, movements, worshiping false gods, just worshiping everything, worshiping them, themselves, worshiping everything except God. Well, what is happening? Well, one of the main reasons God set Israel apart and set, and, and set them apart as special was because it was Israel's job to introduce the rest of the world to the one true living God. And the church today, those of us who, began, who believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we now have that responsibility. We are called to introduce the world to the one true living God. And when we don't lead in that worship, when we don't know how to worship, when we don't understand that role of worship, then it's really gonna be hard for the rest of the world to follow. But there are some basics, some fundamentals to the aspect, the aspects of godly worship. Uh, and we see it verse in verse two there. Very first thing it says is, serve the Lord with gladness, come before him with joyful singing. What we see here is that one of the fundamental aspects of worship before the Lord is joyful service, serving God with a joyful heart. And I have to ask you, here at Second Baptist Church, my goodness, we have so many opportunities to serve. 
If you're, if you're a regular member here, or if, even if you're just visiting and you, you're hanging out at Bible studies, hopefully you become a member one day, and this may apply to you. But if, if you become a member of a Bible study and, and you're asked to take a role in leadership, director, assistant director, you know, you're, maybe you're in charge of the, the social functions of, of that class to, to draw people together, do we take those opportunities to serve with gladness or do we have to be dragged kicking and screaming to do it? Or in some cases, do we have so little gladness in our heart to serve the Lord that we just refuse and we just, we just don't serve at all? Uh, you know, uh, Terry mentioned beach retreat, and you know, if, if are, you're asked to be a, a condo leader, you know, and, and you may not wanna you know, deal with, with, with kids, high school kids for an entire week, but what if God has called you specifically to be there to speak to even one of those teenagers? You know, and, and so when we're asked to do that, or do, do, we, do we do it with a, a heart of gladness or do we have to be dragged into it or do we just say no? You know, later on in the year, you know, we have VBS this week. Uh, later on in the year, we'll have that wonderful event, um, the Christmas event, uh, Angels of Light, yes, of course. And we'll have Angels of Light and, and it, you might get asked to be on a committee to, to help with that. Are, 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 are you gonna be willing, is your heart gonna be glad? Are you gonna have a joyful heart willing to serve the Lord? Or, or are you just gonna say no because there isn't any gladness in your heart in, when it comes to serving the Lord? I think so many people will be able to tell you that dozens could probably come up here, those of, those, those of you who have served. And, and we know that the word of God is so amazing, it can teach us and reach us. God can use it to do that. He uses prayer to teach us and reach us as well. But anyone who has served will tell you that God uses service to teach us and reach us as well. There are so many moments, so many times when we serve the Lord that he draws us closer to him and we learn more and more about his plan. And it also draws us closer to our brothers and sisters who we are serving beside as well. In service most definitely, service with a glad heart, service with a joyful heart is one of the major aspects of worship of our Heavenly Father. Uh, what's another one? Another one we find in verse three. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Another critical aspect of worship, worshiping our Heavenly Father is submission submitting to him and his lordship. Another way to put that is we acknowledge that he is God and we are not. When I was in college, uh, I pledged a fraternity. I'm still a member of the fraternity, I guess, you know, uh, legally. But when I, I, I pledged this fraternity and we went through a pledge process and it ended up lasting seven weeks. And the very last week is what was known as hell week. Uh, some of you have, may have had an experience like that. And it was, the whole process was a uh, mentally, emotionally, physically grueling process. And Hell Week was designed to, it was supposed to be tougher than the previous six weeks combined. And so in order to uh, get us ready for that process, in order to encourage us when we get through the process, uh, the, the guys we call our big brothers, they were already members of the fraternity. They had us in, uh, memorize a poem called Invictus. A lot of you have heard of Invictus. It was written in the 1800s. Um, a guy by the name of William Ernest Henley wrote it. Um, and he wrote it, he was 16 years old, he's an English guy. When he was 16 years old, he had tuberculosis. And because of compl complications from tuberculosis, he ended up losing one of his legs. 
When he got to be about 21, 22 years old, he had some other illnesses, and he, they said, hey, we're going to have to take that other leg. And he said, no, that's not going to happen. And so what he did was he found a, a renowned surgeon, a renowned doctor in another part of England, and he went, and it took about two or three years, but after some grueling treatment and, and, and a number of operations on his foot, they were able to save his leg. And so he, he was already, yeah, yeah, goodness, they, they were able to save his leg. And so he was already in the healing process. He was in an infirmary. And when he was in the infirmary, he'd already started, you know, his becoming, a, he was already a poet, he was already a writer. And going through that grueling experience of treatment after treatment and operation after operation, he ended up pinning the words to the poem Invictus. And Invictus in Latin means unconquered. And so me and my line brothers, when we were pledging this fraternity, we learned this poem Invictus because it was supposed to get us through this very grueling, physically, emotionally week. Um, and I remember this was April of 1991, but I, I remember it almost word for word. And Invictus, the poem, is, is, is going to be here on the screen. But what we had to learn was, out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, nor how charged with the punishment of the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And there were some other verses in there as well. But my goodness, doesn't that sound so strong and bold and romanticized? I am the captain of my soul. I am the master of my fate. And for any of us who know, if you are a Christian and you believe that you are the master of your soul and you are the, the captain of your soul and the master of your fate, you have this Christianity thing totally backwards. Because when we become Christians, Jesus Christ becomes not just our Lord and Savior, he's our Savior and our Lord. That means he is the Lord of our life. He becomes the captain of our soul and the master of our faith. And if you have, without a doubt, and if you are not a Christian yet, we're so glad that you are here. But if you're on the fence and you're trying to figure out this Christian life and what a relationship is with like with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus, it's so critical and important to get across that you cannot be the captain of your soul or the master of your fate if you're going to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He died for your sins. And because of that, we give our lives over to him. Our lives no longer belong to us. And, and you know, I, my man went through some stuff and I, it, was a, it was a great poem, but at the end of the day, it celebrates the human spirit. And that's where humans typically go wrong. When we celebrate and we worship the human spirit, we end up taking our eyes off the spirit of God, off the lordship of God. And oftentimes when that happens, we drift, we drift, and we drift, and whatever we are drifting to, that's what we end up putting in the place of God. But we are called to worship God properly. And in order to do that, in addition to serving him with gladness, we also have to acknowledge his lordship in our lives. What's another aspect of, of worship of, of Almighty God? Well, there in uh, verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. 
In addition to serving him with gladness, in addition to submitting to him, Psalm 100 shows us that our worship of him should also be marked with thanksgiving. Now, the, the words thanksgiving and praise there, the, the Hebrew words for those things actually means we are praising him profusely, overwhelmingly, out, out loud. And remember, this is an Eastern culture, and in many other cultures outside the United States, they're, they're in, in terms of their worship, in terms of, of how they interact, they are what we would call a little less reserved sometimes than, than we are in the United States. And that's great, but I imagine there's somebody here who the Lord has been so profound, he has shown up in your life in such a big way that you can't help but audibly, profusely praise him. But even if you don't do that in an outward fashion, what we are called to do is in our hearts, when we come before Almighty God, when we step into his presence, we should be profusely praising him. It should be overwhelming. We should thank him in a very, very strong way. And that's exactly what Psalm 100 is showing us and saying to us. Today in our praise and in our hearts, the way we live out our lives, we are called to come before him in the same way, loudly, boldly, profusely, boisterously. And the answer is why? Why should we serve a God with joyful service? Why should we praise him with joyful service? Why should we submit to him? Why should we overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly thank him for all that he has done for us? Well, that's in verse five. It says, for the Lord is good, his loving kindness is everlasting, and his faithfulness to all generations. Uh, primary reason we should praise God, the primary reason he deserves our praise is because he is good. Now, don't, 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 don't let that be a throwaway word. I mean, you know, today's, in, in, in our culture today, the word good just means kind of average, right? <laughs> but, but if the word of God says God is good, that means he is good, and it, it's special to be good. And, and I, I think the, the big difference is, is there's a difference between God's good and the good of the world. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take the good of the world. Anything that is good in this world starts off good, doesn't always stay good. Why? Because we are in a fallen, broken, sinful world that is subject to evil and is subject to sin. And so anything that is good has, has the chance it will likely be corrupted by evil. I mean, uh, just a couple of easy examples, you know, uh, social media. Um, let's talk about AI. AI is kind of like the big thing, artificial intelligence, right? So, you know, I mean, the creators of AI in recent months have gone before Capitol Hill and they've said, hey guys, we, we might need you guys to, you know, to do something, you know, set some regulations, some laws, because this is starting to possibly get out of hand and we may not be able to control it. Some AI could pose an existential risk. Now, I know there are a lot of smart people in here and I don't use the word existential that often, so I had to look it up to make sure I knew what I was talking about. But existential means it poses a risk to our very existence. Back in March, they, they, they tried to raise the alarm. A lot of tech leaders across the world signed a petition. They wrote a letter to send to all of the government saying, hey, we need you guys. You know, there's some good stuff. You know, I, there's some good stuff with AI. It, it can help out companies and, and individuals, but it's, it's, it could get out of hand, and we need you all to do something about it. They wrote a letter, a petition, and they signed it. This is what, this is what they said. This is leading tech folks from around the world 
including one of the co-founders of Apple, Elon Musk, says the letter warns that AI systems with human competitive intelligence can pose profound risks to society and humanity, from flooding the internet with disinformation and automating away jobs, to more catastrophic future risks out of the realms of science fiction. It says recent months have seen AI labs locked in an out of control race to develop and deploy ever more powerful digital minds that no one, not even their creators, can understand, predict, or reliably control. I think somebody needs to do something. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't know if we pass laws, uh, I, I, I don't know what we do, but it, AI started off as something good, right? But, but there are so many people who, individuals who are trying to use it for evil, and it might turn out that AI itself is trying to, to do evil. You know, it, it's a thing, it's not even a, a human, it's not even a person. So, so, so that's the difference though. Things in this world might start off good, but they don't always stay good. That's the world's good. God's good is totally different. God's good does not change. God's good is everlasting. Hallelujah. So happy he is outside of this world, and so he is not subject to evil. So when God says he's good, he's good now, he has always been good, and he will always be good. He does not change. So we can count on God's goodness. And one of the reasons we praise him is because he is good. Uh, it also says there in verse five, I wanna focus on loving kindness. It says his loving kindness is everlasting. Uh, what is loving kindness? I mean, we, we've seen it, we, we see it a lot in the Bible. It's kind of an awkward word, two, two big words you know, thrown together. Loving kindness, what exactly does it mean? Well, we know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And so um, the Hebrew word for loving kindness is chesed, chesed. And I'm so glad none of you were like within two or three feet of me because that you know, could really be embarrassing. But chesed is loving kindness in Hebrew. What does chesed mean? That's the last time I'll say it. It is a noun meaning steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, devotion. It's actually used 240 times in the Old Testament one of the most important words in the vocabulary of Old Testament theology and ethics. And there are three basic meanings of the word which always interact. Strength, steadfastness, and love. And so, so any understanding of the word that you fail to incorporate those three th things, you, you kind of dampen down the definition of, of the word. You, you, you cause the word to lose its rich, richness. So in other words, you know, if you're talking about God's loving kindness, you can talk about you know, strength and steadfastness, but you have to include the love. If you talk about the love and steadfastness, you, know, you, you have to bring in the strength. And if you talk about strength and love, you have to bring in steadfastness. Those three words work together to, to explain to us properly what loving kindness is, and it gives us an idea of how God feels about us. So the steadfast love, grace, mercy, faithfulness, goodness, and devotion of God, that God has for all of mankind, he has it forever. It doesn't go away. And as a matter of fact, you can see that in the word of God, woven through the entire thing, from Genesis to the Revelation, through the Psalms, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, what you see is the story of a good, good, loving God who has constantly found a way to redeem to him 
a broken, fallen, stiff-necked, stubborn, evil, sinful, depraved human existence. Almighty God has found a way before he even said, let there be light. Before this timeline that we are on in this universe even began, he knew because of free will, we were going to mess up. But he has constantly found a way to redeem us, this, these broken individuals. He's constantly searched to find a way to redeem us to him. And it's because of his loving kindness. He is faithful, he loves us, and he is good. He is loving, he is full of grace and mercy, he's good and he's faithful, even in our pain. A lot of you know uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, he was uh, an amazing man, writer, Chronicles of Narnia, probably his most famous work, but he did fiction and nonfiction. Uh, and he was the most prolific, best-known Christian apologist of the 20th century. He, 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 he really found his niche, and, and, and what, he, what he did was he wanted to explain Christianity, the Christian faith, not only to Christians, but to the entire world. He was a faithful man of God. Uh, but he was tested even later in life. Um, he didn't marry until he was almost 60. He waited that long to marry because his life was so dedicated to academic pursuits and, and dedicated to Almighty God. So he found the uh, love of his life, Helen Joy Davidman was her name. Uh, they were married, and uh, most people called her Joy, but his name for her was H. That was, that was his name for her, H for Helen, obviously. He just always called her H. And so they were married for four years, but only four years because she ended up dying of cancer. And C.S. Lewis, as you can imagine, was greatly, greatly grieved by her death. He, 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 he was distraught to the point where he was very angry with God. And being the writer that he was, he wrote his feelings down. He, he wrote notes just all the time. They were scattered around his home. He, he wrote in a journal, and he was very, very angry with God. He, he blamed God for losing H. And so he, he finally gets to the point, he wrote some things. I mean, I'm, I'm reading the book, because what they did was they took, he took a collect, the collection of those notes and journals and he put it in a book. Um, and he, he, he wrote it in a pseudonym, and most people didn't know it was him until like, I think almost after he died. Uh, but he wanted the world to see, you know, give an idea of how you might get through grief. And he said some things I'm reading, I'm like, it almost felt blasphemous. I'm, you know, I felt like if, if I wrote something like this, <laughs> I might get hit with a lightning bolt, I don't know. But, but, but he, it was okay. It was okay for him to express his feelings and emotions. It's okay for us to express our feelings and our emotions when we are hurt, even if we feel God is the one that hurt us because he's God. He already knows what's in our heart anyway, so we might as well go ahead and express it and then we get it out and we give him a chance to deal with it. So. He, he almost walked away from his faith, but he stayed and he started trusting God more, but he still was missing H. And he really desperately wanted to be reunited with her when they get to heaven. But then as God was growing him and developing him in all of that, what God showed him was, are you trying to come back to me in a faithful relationship because your real goal is to reunite with H? And C.S. Lewis writes about that very thing. The book is called A Grief Observed. Uh, some of you may have read it, plenty of you probably have. If you have ever gone through grief, the loss of a loved one or a relationship, 
I highly recommend this book. It is, it is, it is amazing. But this is what C.S. Lewis writes about his desire to reunite with H and how it coincides with his relationship with Almighty God. He says, am I, for instance, just sidling back to God because I know that if there's any road to H, it runs through him? But then, of course, I know perfectly well that he can't be used as a road. If you're approaching him not as the goal, but as a road, not as the end, but as a means, you're not really approaching him at all. That's what was really wrong with all those popular pictures of happy reunions on the further shore. Not the simple-minded and very earthly images, but the fact that they make an end of what we can get only as a byproduct of the true end. Lord, are these your real terms? Can I meet H again only if I learn to love you so much that I don't care whether I meet her or not? What, what C.S. Lewis is telling us that he learned from that experience is that God allowed him to go through that grief, the grief of his, the loss of his wife. God used that to draw C.S. Lewis closer to him and to help C.S. Lewis understand God more. And what he also told, shows us, and he's talking about, you know, we can't use God as an end, or God has to be the end, we can't use him to get to the end. What, what he's telling us, it very much echoes what Jesus said on the Sermon of the Mount in, in Matthew chapter six. We have Jesus is talking to the folks and he's talking to them about the things that they want. And they're worried about you know, provisions and how they're gonna survive and live and clothes and all that kind of thing, stuff. And, and Jesus says, look, hey guys, I'm paraphrasing. Here's the deal, you guys are worried about all these things. Like, it, it, can't you look and see the birds in the air? Like God takes care of them and the lilies in the field and the grass. I mean, the lilies don't have to plow you know, the land for themselves. That God takes care of them, he's found a way to, and he makes them beautiful. So, so if he takes care of the birds and he takes care of the flowers and he takes care of the grass, you being made in his image, how much more is he going to take care of you? So don't worry about all the stuff. Don't worry about all the things. Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to seek first the kingdom of heaven and then all those things are gonna be added to you. Seek God first, that's your primary, that's your, pri that's, your, that's, that's your goal, that's your job. Seek him first and then all the stuff, all the things are, are gonna come. And it doesn't mean life is gonna be perfect, I mean you're gonna end up sometimes, unfortunately, going through tough times, even going through the grief that C.S. Lewis went through. But, but what, what Jesus is saying, what C.S. Lewis was trying to get across is, we, we can't go to God to get things. We, they're of course in a relationship with Almighty God, I don't wanna be too clinical, but blessings are a byproduct of a relationship with Almighty God. Again, it doesn't mean everything's perfect, but you are going to be blessed, you are going to get things. But we don't go to God to get things, we go to God to get God. That's what it comes down to, and that is the very That is the very essence of worship. We go before a holy God to get him, to get his glory, to get his, his love, his grace, his mercy, his truth, his justice. We go to God to get God. And when we get that right, 
especially as Christians, we, if, if we get that right and, and we could lead the, the rest of the world in doing that as well, when we get that right, our lives will sing wonderfully, beautifully, in honor of God, in submission to God, giving God all the glory. Our lives will sing exactly how the Psalms were designed to sing. Go to God to get God. <laughs>